You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Hey guys, it's and welcome to Ace Podcast Nation, where you can find podcasts, interviews and content on a whole variety of subjects, including football, mental health, films, wrestling, serial killers, conspiracy theories, music and more. We upload three shows a week, Monday, Wednesday, Fridays. We're constantly adding new series and guests of all types, including podcasters, doctors, ex-professional footballers, authors, journalists, and others. The best way to support us and keep us bringing you cool shows and great guests is by subscribing on YouTube, leaving comments, and sharing our videos and posts. Today's show is on football, and I'm thrilled and honoured to have an ex-Premier League to join me, so please welcome ex Cardiff City, ex Stoke, ex Wigan, ex Sunderland, Carlisle, and former Republic of Ireland international, Mr. Graham Kavanagh. Thanks for joining me, Graham. Even no problem at all, Paul. Yeah, so before we uh, get into the inevitable Cardiff City talk and discuss, uh, you know, your career and that goal versus Leeds, that game, gonna have to talk about that. I just wanted to chat a bit about um, sort of how you came about, how you got into football professionally and obviously moved over from uh, Ireland. Um, who did you support when you were growing up? Uh, Liverpool fan. I've actually, I've actually got a cup of tea here. Oh, no. Yeah. Quick, I'm going to have to end this now. Jeez. <laughs> oh. Yeah, Liverpool fan, so. yeah. Oh, so you've had a good, uh, good couple of weeks then with uh, with your holiday. Yeah, and your... Enjoyed it, yeah. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, my dad, uh, my dad, my uncle, and all all his mates used to go to Liverpool, and um, I was only probably three, four, five, whatever it was. So they used to get me, um, you know, jerseys, scarves, caps, um, towels, all sorts of stuff, mugs. Um, so it was inevitable I was going to be a Liverpool fan, and, and my uncle was a big Graham Stillness fan. My dad was a big Daglish fan, so um, Daglish became my hero. Um, and then, as I said, I grew up and 
instead of becoming a field player, obviously you, you look back and see us and, and realise how great he was. But I think Liverpool at that stage were just well, they were incredibly fortunate with the I don't mean unfortunate, they were the fortunate is the wrong word, but I think the fans were blessed um, to see such an amazing team and probably thought it was gonna happen all the time. And as we've seen, it's been twenty nine years since they've since they won the league, but they've had a little bit of well, a great bit of success obviously last week, but um they've been on tough times obviously. But yeah, for me, for me coming over was um, it was always a dream from probably from the age of about six or seven. I used to have all the posters on the wall. And I used to envisage playing for Liverpool and um, just you know matches the day on a Saturday night and just staying up and watching it and thinking, well, someday I'm gonna I'm gonna play for, I'm gonna play on there. But I'm sure every kid thinks that. But I don't know what it was. I definitely had an inner belief. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, and to be honest, I wasn't even probably good enough um, up to the age of probably about 10. I, I was always better than the kids around me, but when I, when I played at the elite level, I wasn't good enough up until that age. And then I went to a team home farm under 12s, under 13s, and we, we had an amazing, amazing. I mean, everybody in the team went away on trials, but about seven or eight of them went away. And the two that actually made it was myself and Gary, Gary Kelly, played at Leeds, and we were probably the least. The two players with the least amount of ability, really. So it just shows you perseverance, drive, desire, determination. Obviously, with talent as well. But um, it, it makes up for an awful lot of things. Yeah, and I think um, I spoke a bit to when I spoke to Willie Boland about like the academy system. And I think it also shows that what you were saying there is like that it, just because a kid's not good enough, maybe at 10, 11, that doesn't mean that they won't develop by the time they're 16, 17 into. You know, a player capable of playing professionally because, you know, you see some boys who are in the academy system and they're best in their team, you know, from a young age, sort of seven, six, seven, and they can go all the way and then up to about sort of 14 and then everyone else catches up with them a bit with size or skill. And I think sometimes the clubs write off kids a bit too early, maybe. Um, because yeah, you know, I mean, go on. But my, 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 impression or interpretation if you like of the, the academy system now. Um back when I played, it was a much better system. It was a much better um pathway if you like. We basically came from the youth team into essentially the reserves and the reserves were first team players who weren't playing. Whether they needed games, whether they had been dropped from the first team, whether they were coming back from injuries. Um, generally when the senior players played there was a nastiness about them. There was a, an aggression about them. Um, and even when the game was started, a lot of them didn't really want to probably play. They felt above the reserves. But if you if you tried to take the mickey at all, or you tried to um, outwit them or be cleverer than them, you very quickly found that the, 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 the professional nature of any professional footballer, they, they invariably wanted to try and do you. Um, they wanted to leave a bit on you. And it was such a learning curve, and it was a brilliant grounding because, I mean, just an example, I remember coming away, um, I was only, whatever it was, 16, and I went, doing really well in the, in the U team, the very start, and I was put into reserves, I think it was, at 16, just just showing me 17 birdie. And with a player called John Mark, and John Mark was in the Scabia victory, played for Ipswich, played at Middlesbrough when I was there, and played for Liverpool. Very, very clever Scotland. He was he, he was a great player, really, to be honest. I didn't realise how good he was until I actually played him. But we actually played anyway one day and 
he said to me uh, from a corner, he says, right, listen, stand on my toes and just go literally attack the near post. And the first corner comes in, I go attack the near post, he comes in behind me, header, bang, goal. Two minutes later, he says, right, stand on my toes, spin around the back, go back post, I'm going to go near post, bang, ball in the box, and header, goal. He's got a hat trick in the game, right? And I remember thinking to myself, going, Jesus Christ, is that how good he actually is? And it was his awareness and his understanding of the game and the movement of other players and his experience. And talking about the academy level now, you have the pathway where they develop all through the ages. They get to 16, 17, 18, and they step into the U-team environment. And then they step up to this bridging gap, which is under 23 football, which it drives me mad, to be honest. Because I'm, I'm a scout now for Bristol City. And um, so I watch four team games, but I go to an awful lot of 23 football and I could basically do the same report on every game. Send a half split, fullbacks go high, midfield player comes and gets it, they play one in the hole, there's one up top, two wide men roll inside and you look at them going, Jesus Christ, every team plays the same and nobody tackles each other, there's no physicality and I think we're doing a disservice to the kids because I think when they actually step into that first team training session, or they go and step into a first team game if they're lucky enough to make it, make the, the the jump. They're just not ready. You know, they're learning on the job, which we all were, don't get me wrong. But I was learning on the job at 17, 18, and they're learning on the job at 22, 23. And if they haven't got games by that time, they're generally not going to make it as a, as a player because even as example, when I was Carl, uh, manager at Carlisle United, and from all the managers that I speak to, the very first thing you ask for, so as an example, you get released from Liverpool, and let's say you go to Carlisle, and every, all the Liverpool players, the Man United players, or whoever, they all come to the lower clubs and think, oh, this is going to be easy. It's far from easy. It's an absolute culture shock to them. The, the game is different. The, the environment is different. The facilities are different. And the mentality is different. And they go from an easy Aussie environment where they're pushed technically, but physically they're not really pushed, and then they come into an environment where it's not about technique, it's about physicality, and it's about mindset, and they can't handle it. And a lot of them drop by the wayside. And the first thing, as I said, that any manager asks is how many games has he played? Has he, how many first team games has he played? And kids today don't understand that. And I think we're doing it. I think we need to revamp the whole. If I'm being honest, we need to revamp the whole system because I think under 23 football is just clubs are, are keeping players on way too long, and the kids then get released at 23. They've not played a first team game, and they're, and they're now entering the world of well, the real world, having yeah. been a footballer for six or seven years gone through the academy system as well, have everything sort of done for them. And they can't really, they've got no skill set. So it's, for me, it doesn't work. Yeah, it's a big, big, big difference, isn't it, between like under 23 football and then championship, League One, League Two. Because like you say, it's a whole different game down there. Any team can be any team on any day. And it's, like you say, very, very physical. And if you've not, being in that environment going up through the age groups it's, it's a big big shock isn't it? and if you haven't if these kids if these boys then haven't got the mentality to adapt or the capability to adapt their sort of the physical side of the game no matter how talented are they you know they can drop out um so yeah, yeah I tell- a, lot time, a lot of the time it's actually it's not really always the the, the, the kids fault because into under twenty three football, you very rarely hear them talking about second balls and um, competing for the the breakdown and 
Um, the transition of when the ball changes hands, whether it be a bad pass or whether it be somebody wins a tackle, and the game and the tempo of the game is way slower. So when they do actually step into that environment, it's not something that they they used to. Their skill set isn't like that. Um, but the reality is that's what the game is. And the quicker you want to um, adapt and learn, listen. If there's any young kids listening to this, especially if you're a young pro, my advice would be listen. Try and try and forget about doing the 23s. Get yourself out. Try and get first team games on loan. Um, gain experience. Come back. You'll have a much tougher mindset. You'll have a much stronger um, understanding of of how and what the game is all about. And it'll only do you the world of good in, in in the club that you're at. You know. Yeah, I mean, when you look at players like um, like Harry Kane, who went out on rather than staying in the Spurs academy system. He went out on loan several times to sort of different clubs around the country, and he came back ten times the player that he was from playing first team football. And I don't think on loan, I don't think he scored hundreds and hundreds of goals. You know, he's, I think he scored a few, but he's you know nothing compared to what he's doing now for the Tottenham first team. But that experience of playing, you know, proper professional football, I think did him the world of good. And there's a few, you know, even players like, like I don't know that I particularly, I particularly rate him, but Jesse Lingard did the same, went out on loan and then came back in his early 20s to Man United and has, has done all right. And he's played, you know, but would he be, would those players have progressed the way they have if they just sat in the under 23s, not experiencing, you know, the real aspects of the, you know, the, the intensity of, First team football. So, no, well, the answer yeah, so. is a million percent no because even the, the you know the consequence of losing losing a first team game for the players who are actually currently at that club is potentially life changing because if they lose enough of the games they're going to be out of the league therefore they're not going to have to be a professional football anymore then they've got to go and get a job so they're in a dressing room these young kids come in from Tottenham Man United Liverpool Arsenal Man City wherever it might be and they're just. You know they they have to come to terms with it pretty quickly. And when I was assistant manager at Carlisle when when, when uh, Harry Kane was at Leighton Orient, and I'm going to be totally honest, with you, there's no way in the world would I ever said that he was going to captain England. But you could see he had a toughness about him and a mindset that he was going to he wanted to develop and learn. And fair play to him, he's going out, he's doing amazingly well. And, and, and you know you've got to tip your hat to him and say, listen, well done, and and then you deserve everything you get. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, thing because I think so often clubs want to keep these players in the under-23s so that they can call on them if they get a load of injuries. But from a development point of view, you know, it seems like they'd be better going to get proper first-team football. So how did... Um, so you obviously were brought up in Ireland, you live in Ireland. How did it come about, come about that you sort of moved over here and I had a couple of trials uh, before I came away and then um, I played in what's called the, the Milk uh, Cup up in Northern Ireland and um, Air Group had uh, Middlesbrough, Liverpool, um, a couple of local teams. Anyway, we, we, uh, we won the group, we beat Liverpool 5-0, we drew up Middlesbrough and we beat the other two local teams, we got to the semi-final. Um, and we actually got beaten on penalties by Spurs, who had Nicky Barnby and Darren Casca. They did a good side. 
Uh, Stuart Nethercutt, there was quite a few players who actually went on to play first team football. But Ron Bond, the youth development officer at Middlesbrough, he he had seen me and after the, after we played Middlesbrough, he said, look, uh, I'm watching them over in trial. So long and short, basically, I came, I went back to Ireland, went back to Dublin, went home, um, had a couple of weeks, went back pre-season with Middlesbrough, done like, I think it was about eight days, and just sort of done really well in the first game, scored two, we scored in the second game, but we didn't win, but I played quite well. And straight away, they said, look, we want to sign you, but I went back to Ireland and I played for... Um, Played for Ireland actually against Northern Ireland, and I uh, I scored in the game. We won one nil, and uh, as I went, as I scored, lad slid in, done my ankle, I, I rolled my ankle and um, done all the ligaments. So in that time, in that in that window, if you like, um, everybody wanted to sign me. It was like nobody was afraid. Everybody was afraid rather to to take the chance, take the first step. But once Middlesbrough declared, right, that's it. I'm going to sign you. Um, all the clubs come in and say, look, we want you on trial, but I wasn't physically capable because I was injured. So we'd agreed to sign on my 17th birthday, which was the, the 2nd of December. Um, so Middlesbrough said, look, come over early. I think it was about the 8th of October. They said, come over about the 8th of October. We'll give you treatment for eight weeks. And we're actually playing Liverpool in the in the Youth Cup on the 8th of December. So I thought, Jesus, to play at Anfield would be unbelievable. You know what I mean? So uh, I wanted to get myself fit for that. On the day I actually signed, um, so I signed the forms that would take me up to my 17th birthday. Um, I get a phone call to say, listen, Liverpool have come in. They've, uh, they're going to double your wages and um, they're going to give you the same length of, length of contract, which was a three-year deal. But at that time, Liverpool had just won the league and they had Ronnie Wheel and John Barnes, Stephen Mann, um, a lad who I played in the team at home farm, a fella called Mark Kenny. He was ahead of me, or, or in my head he was ahead of me, I thought he was a better player than me at the time. And I was always conscious of thinking, well, I want to have a career, am I, am I really going to be good enough for Liverpool? Yes, it's my dream to play for Liverpool, but I don't want to sort of ruin the, um, the chances I may have. And I just got the impression with Middlesbrough that because the club was where it was at at that stage, there was, they were giving a lot of young kids chances. The youth system was, was, was quite strong. And um, and that and that I just said, right, I'm gonna stick with my decision. Leeds came in also, and they they more or less said the same. Although they weren't offering me as much money, um, but I, just, I had my mind made up, and I, I said, right, that's it, I'm gonna go to Middlesbrough. And, and in, in fairness, it was never about money; it was all about just the opportunity. And I mean, if they'd have said to me, look, we'll give you a year and no money, I'd have, I'd have done it. So so yeah, that, and that was it. And then the rest is history, as they say. But I mean, coming to England was was tough, you know. Like it's not. I think everyone goes, yeah, it's. Um, yeah, well, you made it, walked out right, but Jesus, for the first year, I was living in digs. There was no mobile phones, there was no no iPads, there was none of that, you know what I mean? I didn't even have a video in my room, video recorder. It was literally four stations at the time. Sundays were the longest day of the week. Oh, Sundays were horrible. Um, we used to try and sleep as much as you could. And then I used to make a phone call home um, on, on a Sunday night at nine o'clock. And my mum and dad used to ring me on a Wednesday night. We used to speak twice a week, so you're trying to catch everything into a 15-minute conversation. So yeah. it was difficult. How, how I managed to do it, I have no idea, to be honest, because I, I obviously was mentally strong. I thought, well, I was, I was way mentally stronger than I, than I thought I was, but, um, yeah, it was tough. But, that, but that's the same for most Irish kids, because they come away and they just they don't have any alternative. It's, there's, there's no professional football in Ireland that is going to get you to the Premier League. So, you know, you've got to take the gamble and, and, and back yourself and, Unfortunately for me, it walked out. Yeah, 
it's uh, it's a big. I think it must have been a big thing for you. Like age seventeen is you know seventeen's no age, is it? To uh, to come to a different country away from your family, and obviously as well as that sort of aspect of it, you've also got the pressure of you want to be a professional footballer. So you're thinking, right, I'm coming over here to do a job and you know push your career on. And I mean, I got to say, like as a seventeen year old having that offer from Liverpool, that must have been a huge. Like a huge pull for you being a Liverpool fan to get that offer as you're going to come across from Ireland. So you know, a fair play to you for to be age 17 and still make the decision. Of, you know, for sort of playing time if you like, or that aspect of yeah, it. I mean, that's big but decision. To be honest, I mean, I wasn't. When I look back now, it's a very mature decision I made. But I wasn't at that time at 16. Force made the decision. I wasn't. I wasn't mature. Like I knew, I knew I wasn't mature. But when I came to football, I knew. I knew what my capabilities were at that age. Um, and I, although I had a lot of talent, I think I probably dealt with myself more than what I should have done. But I do think it was the right decision I made. And I think would clubs of a bigger ilk have, have, have been as patient with me? Probably not. Because when, when I came away for the first first three months, I played really well. And then the next three months, I couldn't hit a barn or a banjo. I was my head had gone. Um, I couldn't wait to go back in the summer. I was I was kept thinking about getting home, seeing my parents, seeing my girlfriend at the time, and um, seeing all my mates and, and all that carry on. And it was just yeah, it was it was uh, it was tough. But as I say, you, you come out to the other side of it. And then once I was home for sort of three weeks, I was thinking, oh, I'm itching now to get back. I'm itching to get fit again, and I want to break into the force team. And to be honest, I, I ended up getting into the force team the following season. Um, we were in the Premier League and we played Sheffield Wednesday. We played in Notts Forest actually, away. And then um, I played in that game. And then we played Sheffield Wednesday at home in my debut. And I, I actually nearly scored with a volley. Chris Woods was in goal. They had a very good side at the time. And that was sort of my breakthrough. I thought, you know what, I know I can do this. I know I'm good enough. Um, and I think along the way, you then start adding bits to your game. And well, what am I not so good at? Really? I need to learn to track runners. I need to win more second balls. And, um, I actually thought the game at the time was all about was all about pinging the ball sixty yards, getting a shot off, mm. let somebody else defend for me. I don't need to do. It. I'm too good. And all. I didn't think in my own head I'm too good, but I think arrogantly I probably did think at times that somebody that's somebody else's job. But then you, you quickly learn because you when you play with the likes of Brian Robson and Nigel Pearson and um, some of the, the the senior big characters that I played. I think it sort of ended up forming a real sort of strong personalities. They start to form, well, they don't form who you are, but you take bits of them. And if you're not, if you're, if you're not wise enough to see their strengths and what they're good at, um, like even an example, Brian Robson, probably the best drinker I've ever seen in my life, right? And his, his attitude to it was, listen, if you, if you want to drink, have a drink, do whatever you want, I'm not bothered. But you better be able to train the next day. And if you can't train, don't drink. And I've come in and you could smell drink off him and we would run. And he would be at the front of the running and he would train like an absolute beast. And listen, I'm not I'm not condoning drinking and training, I'm not saying that, but it was a different era then. And the point I'm trying to make here is his mentality, his will to win, his determination, his drive. And he was totally six at the time. And that really had an effect on me thinking. You know the excuses you can make for yourself, 
and you can give yourself the easy way out. Robbo was never prepared to do that, and he didn't. And he didn't expect any of his players to. And ultimately, in the end, his attitude to the group was, listen, I want you essentially to, listen, you back me, I'll back you, but I want you to run through a brick wall for me because I'll do the same for you. And I think them type of characters have a big bearing on, you know, your mindset going forward. And it was, a, yeah, it was a, it was a really good learning curve for me. It's, it's an interesting point you made there about, um, like, when you play with players throughout your career, you take a bit of them with you, particularly players, you know, of, of the standard and uh, ilk of Brian Robson. Because, like, I don't know if you'd agree, but my opinion um, of sort of your career is that every sort of step, I thought you got better and better, the, you know, the way you went through. Obviously, you had a spell with Middlesbrough. Then you made 200 appearances for Stoke, um, which is when I sort of I was first aware of you. Then when you were playing for Stoke, you obviously had a great, pretty successful time there. You had 200 appearances. Um, what like when you look back at your time in, at Stoke? What are some of the sort of memories and moments that stand out for you? Well, uh, it was sort of clear at Middlesbrough I wasn't I wasn't playing as often as I'd like. Um, you know, we had a very good side, but I was I was at the twenty one. Um we just signed Janino, Emerson Ravinelli. And I knew if I'm gonna prolong my career, although it's great being part of a football club that's really on the up. Everybody in the country was talking about the northeast, was talking about Sunderland, um Newcastle and, and Middlesbrough. And we were signing some superstars, you know, as I say, Ravinelli, Janino, uh, Emerson, but we we you know, with Branco, um you know, there was there was quite a few players that were linked to us, and as as went on to be obviously Mason, Gaza, Townsend, uh, would get uh, so Southgate. The club, the club did have a have a bigger um, picture, if you like. And I was I just thought right, I need to go and play first team football. So Lou McCarthy, the English manager of Stoke, took me to took me to um, to Stoke on loan. Done really well. He signed me. And again, I, I, I was brilliant probably for about three months, and then I, I was shit. Then I just didn't play well for for a period of time, about six weeks. And the fans sort of had a go at me, and then I ended up getting back in the team and scored the last goal at the Victoria Ground. And we moved then to the Britannia Stadium and I managed to score the first goal at the, at the new stadium. The problem with all that was what I didn't realise was when the club was building the new stadium, it had run out of money, and there was no money to invest in the team. So. We were getting free transfers. So when you're looking at the coming to the door, the players just weren't good enough, and it was it was very frustrating. So I think I, I had a period of five years, and I think we had about seven or eight managers. And listen, I'm not blaming the managers because I think it's unfortunate because I've been a manager myself. But um, you know, the recruitment wasn't great at the club. The finances, the financial situation wasn't great, and I think the club was had to bind itself time just to 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 sort of get to that next stage where it either got promoted and was then able to. To bring in the Premier League money, but it's at the back for it, and we got relegated. And it was, it, it, I have to say, it was tough times. But I think at Middlesbrough, I started to learn to be a professional. At Stoke, I learned to be a first name player, like a regular first name player, what it meant, how to prepare, how to train, uh, how to recover. Um, so they were like vital sort of parts to to me developing as a, an experienced pro. And I think that that just culminated me then, you know, having the opportunity to come to Cardiff. And to be honest, Cardiff wasn't really an appealing option to me at the time, if I'm being honest, um, because it was 
it was a clubber that looked like it seemed to everybody at Stoke there was a backup step. But I'd met Sam Man and Corky on the Thursday after the Wednesday night game. We played on the Wednesday against uh, Walsall in the playoffs. And I scored one of the best goals ever. And um, I got on the bus, was sick as a pig. We hadn't got promoted, we lost on the playoffs. And then um, I said, look, Sam Man's going to meet you tomorrow morning. This is my agent. Sam Man's going to meet you tomorrow and um, he, he wants to have a conversation with you. And I'd had some great times at Stoke. You know, we won the auto-win screen. I, I scored a goal at Wembley. I won the match. Um, scored a lot of goals. Scored 50-odd, 40-odd goals, 45 goals. I think it was in Timber and Appearance. So I was, I was a regular scorer. There was, there was quite a few teams. Newcastle bid two and a half million for me. They didn't accept him. Fulham had bid 1.75 million and they didn't accept him. So there was a few things that were happening along the way that I thought I should really be playing a higher level. But whatever it was with Sam when I met him, it was a... Uh, he had this aura and he had this belief and he made you feel like you're 10 foot tall and he also sold the dream of the football club and how the where the club was going to progress to who they were going to sign the money that was going to be spent and the new stadium as it turned out a lot of it was bullshit but he was a good salesman <laughs> um, because I thought the stadium was going to be literally two years down the line yeah yeah and it wasn't and that, that was frustrating but in saying that it was it was most definitely the most enjoyable time in my career, moving to Cardiff. You know, my wife, um, you know, my son was born in, in Wales. Um, my daughter had been born in Stoke, but was now going to school in, in Rada and stuff. And it was, um, yeah, it was just, it was just four, four unbelievable, four and a half unbelievable years, really. You know. Yeah, I remember that. You know, when you signed, you were obviously you turned from a higher level. You were really, really highly rated. And it was a big fee for a you know a club in our position at that point. But uh, so you've joined Cardiff, it's, uh, and it, like I say, it was a wild and exciting time under Sam Man. I've, um, like, did you feel the pressure because it was quite a large fee, at, you know, at the time for a club in Cardiff's no. position? No, no, not really. No, um, I mean, I, I didn't even think of it as. I mean, I know a million quid's a lot of money, don't get me wrong, but. Um, in today's money, it's not it's not really big. I know this was whatever it was, 17, 18, no, it was 18 years ago now. Um, and it was the, the highest the club had paid at the time, and it was probably one of the highest in the division and all that. But, I mean, we'd, we'd signed Ravanelia at Middlesbrough for seven and a half million. He was on 42 grand a week. I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, that's pressure. Mm. Um, I knew I was capable at 26, 27, coming into the league to get goals. Um, Sam Atom was going to be captain. That was a little bit awkward coming to the restroom to be captain straight away after the team had just been promoted. Leggy was captain. Um, I think a few of the players were like, well, come on, improve yourself. Um, like, why did, it, why did the, the club think you're the best man, so to speak, for the job? Um, and I remember even the very first day I walked into the club, I remember coming in thinking the dressing room was about 25 players. The dressing room was ridiculous the amount of players we had. And um, couldn't even find a place to sit. So I put my bag down. Put me back down and went around and I thought, right, I need to make a, make a statement there. So I literally walked around and shook everyone's hand, looked everyone in the eye. How are you doing? Playing Covenant. Nice to meet you. Blah, blah, blah. Every single player. And I think a lot of them were a bit like, fuck's this fella, you know what I mean? Who does he think he is? Yeah. But, but it, wasn't about, it wasn't about the arrogance of it. It was more about I wanted to show them that I was approachable, but I was here, I meant business. I was here to, if you like me, great. If you don't like me, I'm actually not bothered. Because uh, yeah. I'm, I'm going to be successful here, and, and, I, and I want to, I want everyone to be sort of jailed, and I want us all to have the one goal, which is, well, we're going to be successful. And 
and that was had the I suppose taking on the role of being the captain and um but in fairness all the lads were brilliant with me. You know, I probably took about I'd say about two months and um, done pre season, went to Ireland, had a good time in Ireland, we played quite a few games, scored a few. And I think the lads had to got to know how I was and how I trained and how I played and what my mindset was and what my character was. And it just it just seemed to fit and gel and it was uh, it was it was great, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like I say, it was an exciting time, and I I remember you signing. Obviously, with Samerman, there's been the there's been so many rumours over the years about you know Wimbledon and Cardiff with sort of pre-match rituals, eating strange cuisines, or walk where there's walking around the pitch during the matches. You know, there's been all sorts of stories. Is there uh, any uh, any stories you can share about uh, Samerman and the time with Cardiff? Uh. Well, he actually said to me, um, if I didn't, what was it? I think it was, he gave me a tag of, I think it was 10 goals. And he said, if I didn't score 10 goals, I would have had to eat sheep's testicles. Um, and he actually <laughs> did write that for the contract. Uh, oh, I no the, is he actually taking the mickey here or what? <laughs> but I just I'm being, um, you know, you, 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 you made you inclusive, you made the whole, it was sort of a bit of a, a siege mentality. Um, and he, I mean, he used to come down to the training ground and he, he'd, he'd come down in the suit and he'd have a, a wad load of money. And he'd, he'd say, right, lads, I'll race you. So we'd go and stand the halfway line, we'd be on the bottom line. And he'd say, right, if you beat me to the top line, I'll give you 50 quid. He couldn't run, Sam. Like, <laughs> the lads would sprint, get to the top line. We'd, we'd all take 50 quid off him. And um, then the lads would pick him up and throw him in the water. Up in the... Uh, in Lantrisen where we used to train and uh, he used to love it Sam used to, he used to get into his car soaking wet uh, and he just he, he just loved being part of the, the boys and the crack and, but that was how he was and he wanted to portray that image to the world you know we united and that's why he used to walk around the ground and I always remember the Leeds game when I mean that was I think I think I read something recently Rio Ferdinand said uh, the most intimidating hostile atmosphere you've ever played it he said it must have been Galatasaray or and he goes, you can handle that any atmosphere when you've played in Indian Park. Um, and it was like, Jesus Christ, it was. It was intimidating that night. But I don't know, it was, oh, that was, I mean, even now, just the, the hairs in the back of the next time, that was just incredible. All around incredible night, you know. The atmosphere, the, the, the stadium, the noise. I actually remember um, the following day I recorded it. And Andy Gray actually says, I actually can't hear myself speak. And he was right above the Bob Bank at the time. Um, so yes, that was it was unbelievable. Yeah, it was a special, special day. Obviously, like they were top of the Premier League, we weren't. But it was just it was hostile. It was loud. It was jam packed. They had you know they had players like Ferdinand, but they had players like uh, Viduka and you know, Alan Smith. But uh, obviously, you scored a free kick in the game, which was once we scored that equaliser through the free kick, we. It just felt like something was going to happen, or every time we got anywhere near their goal, and because they were, you know, they were an unbelievable team. But it was just one of those funny days in the FA Cup, I suppose. Well, I remember I said to you, uh, when the draw was made and we pulled Leeds at home. Now I used to travel in with Neil Alexander every day, and we used to take a turn in the car. And, I mean, get in the car one morning, and then um, I said, "Have you seen the draw?" And he went, "Yeah, yeah geez, I can't, can't believe we got them at home, amazing." And uh, I said, I'm saying I'm going to score. And he went, 
shut up, boys. I'm telling you, I'm gonna score. Um, and in fairness, every every day for about I don't know. Well, I used to practice free kicks anyway, but every day I remember thinking, "Was second man in the wall, hitting the second man's head over his head, right in the stanchion." And that, that was all I kept thinking. I remember getting the free kick thing, and I know I just gone. This is going top corner, like. Um, and so it's a mad feeling to know exactly what you're going to do, and, and then bang, do it. But in the in the environment they were in, because everybody was thinking, "We're not scoring against Leeds. We have no right to score against Leeds." You know what I mean? But and it was funny before the game. I went down to see Gary Kelly and Ian Hart on the pitch, and we we're just having a quick conversation. And um, they'd flown down, and Harty says, uh, "Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's like he gets you lot. You know, like because you'd be." The lower league team, you'll be running around, and I remember thinking, going, you lot. So I went in, and I said it to the lads, and Alan Cork went, right, you tell you what, lads, we're changing the system. You're going to go and play in the right. Um, Gavin Gordon was playing up top, but he, I don't know if he went to a five or how, no, he played, that's what he did, he played, uh, Paul Brayson played, and he put him in the hole, I think, and uh, every time we got the ball, we just went, right, where's Ernie? Ernie, don't think about anything, just go and run hardy. And it was one of them games where it just all fell together, you know what I mean? It was it was, uh, it was a perfect storm, but listen, it wasn't a luck. We, we 100% deserved to win the game. And, and I thought, actually, we, and don't get me wrong, they did a few good chances. And, um, but yeah, I thought, I thought we played it exceptionally well, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It was special. When um, I was speaking to Andy Campbell and we were talking about the goal from the playoff final, the, in, uh, which took him up, which took us up, and he said after he scored the goal in extra time he doesn't remember you know anything after that and he said he's watched it back on tv hundreds of times but he's just cannot remember a second of it after the adrenaline sort of dump of scoring the winner um what was the what was that feeling like when uh scott young scores you know the winner it's late on in the game and uh yeah play some yeah. reps well I remember taking the corner and uh, whipped the corner in. We always used to try and hit Leo because Leo was a nuisance in the box, obviously big, physical, and he'd go and attack the ball. And then I think Leo might have got a flick on it, but anyway, it drops. It's, it's um, David Batty comes back and Jungie hits it. I remember just I remember going wild at the time and Jungie ran to the corner. I remember sprinting after him. And as I sprinted, I thought, shit, we've still got about six minutes left or five minutes left, including injury time. Um, and I thought, right, let's just go and see the game out. But that's when you're trying to manage the game in your head because of the experience. But there'll be a lot of young lads, Gabs, Ernie, um, you know, quite a few of them who, who hadn't sort of played at any level where they understood how to win the game. It was all just about, well, if we score, we'll win. But, but they didn't understand. And you're trying to, in the moment, say, right, let's, let's calm everything down. But, but, they, but the stadium is erupting and it's going berserk. Um, and it was, yeah, it was, it was mad. And then getting back in the dressing room after, geez, the dressing room was, was, was wild. Sam and Man was in. And that's actually when he swore on, on Sky. I don't really remember. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, no, it was, it was brilliant. Yes, it was. Still, even just talking about it now, and like, listen, I can hear it in your voice talking about it. It's just like the, the excitement of it and just the, it's like one of those things where you remember it and the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, and you get goosebumps just reliving the, you know, those 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 moments and those goals. Special, special game, and the, you know yeah. the FA Cups. The FA Cups funny, you know. It just every year pulls up these results which have got no business happening, 
I've there's no rhyme, no reason to it because you know it can't just be luck. But it happens every single year without fail. You know, one big Premier League team will go out to a lower league team every time. Yeah, well, I think, I think it's a lot of it's mindset as well, because I think the, the lower league team is, is, is thinking it's their big day and it's their opportunity to show the world how good they can be. And I do think there's an element of the, the, the bigger team thinking, shit, we don't need this game. It's, they're going to kick the shit out of us. They're going to be physical with us. They're going to be in our face. They're, they're going to have a tempo and an energy. If we don't score early, the game could be long. And I think that the, when they scored in the, in the game, I think they thought, right, that's just we probably won now. Whereas we, we kept going and then obviously the, the, the sending off Alan Smith to a leggy and that had a that had a sort of big impact on, on how the game went. But um, yeah, no, it was it was, uh, it was definitely a day I'll never forget, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um so just as we uh, sort of start to finish off, what's the um what's the craziest thing that you've ever witnessed or experienced on you know within football? Within football, shit. These type of questions put me on the spot like this. Now, this this question will drive me mad on me, and I'll end, up coming, I'll end up thinking about something tomorrow. And I go, shit, I should have said that. Um, don't know really. Um, obviously, I've played in games where there's been broken legs and stuff like that, which I know it's the normal football. But whenever you see it, it's not very really nice, and um, especially with teammates if you played with. But um, scandals. To be honest, I'd be, I'd be lying to you if I said. Um, I've never really been involved or around any. I mean, obviously, the, the World Cup of Roy Kane, which I wasn't involved in, but I heard all the stories about it. That was quite shocking at the time, considering you know, how often you get a chance to go to the World Cup and you don't, for whatever reason, you fall out the manager, you don't go. But, I mean, Roy obviously had his reasons and all that, but there's been nothing really that... It's not exactly shocks me really anymore. I think football is one, one of them now that... Um, it used to be it used to be where players moved. You think, geez, I've never seen that happen. And I remember years and years ago when Andy Cole moved to to Man United. You're thinking, oh my god, that's a shock. But then Alan Shearer moved to Newcastle. You think, 15 million quid. You look at the price tags now of players moving, and it's, none of it really shocks you. You know what I mean? No, you know, social media now is so accessible, and literally the news is instant. Um, I think it shocks me the way players can be. I think. Um, as I'm getting older, I think I look back on, on my career and I look back on how I I was grateful to have it and I was probably, um, I cherished it. I look at some players now and I think there's an arrogance, probably because of money and probably because of um, society, but they've become very guarded about the world they live in and they're not accessible anymore. And I think that's a bit, that's something that bothers me, you know, in terms of how do we, how do we get that back? How do we still have a game with the people that everyone can identify and relate to and look up to a footballer and still have respect and everything else. And I think that's something that I'd like to probably see more of. But, but then how do you give a young kid 20 years of age 50 grand a week and not expect him to change? You know what I mean? It's uh, yeah, definitely. a weird one, it's, yeah. So, it's, so it's, it's, probably, it's probably a poor answer to your question, but um, yeah, I, I can't really think of anything at the minute. No, no, no. And you're right, though, in... in... You give these these young guys got so much money. They got more money than they'll ever spend. Of course, they're gonna you know they're gonna change the way they they act, they behave, and like obviously when you were a card, if there was a bit you know a special bond between the players and the 
and the club and the fans. Um, and I think that sometimes is lost in modern football. Like, you, you know, the fans are still there. They're still passionate. But it's not that, like, it was quite a personal, it felt like a personal relationship between the fans and the players at that point in time. Yeah, I think, well, even back then, I mean, you could, you could go into the bar and, you know, you go into your local pub and have a drink. I think players nowadays are very, very sceptical of mobile phones and, um, you know, just being in and around fans where, listen, there's always a rival fan, there's always a fan who doesn't like you for whatever reason. He might even be one of the fans, one of the home team fans, and he's, he's trying to wind you up or annoy you or whatever just to get a reaction. Like, all it takes is somebody with a phone yeah, to, to to have access to to your situation, and then that gets blown out of proportion. And you, know, you might have said something or done something that you regret, and you're thinking, "Shit, I've overreacted," or maybe I haven't overreacted. Maybe I've, I've actually felt in the moment that that was deserved. But ultimately, they're seen as the the bad guy, so they they take themselves out of that environment. And that's why I think an awful lot of them social socialize together at home, uh, and you don't see it. And I think you know that's why Christmas parties and all that now are just off limits there's no Christmas parties and if there is they, they do it in private clubs that n- nobody can see them you know so it's a it's a catch 22 for them you know yeah yeah I can fully understand it because people people just want to sell their story don't they at the end of the day they get the video and then they sell it to the sun or the mirror or whoever and like you say it's easier for those players to avoid it by just doing it within their own home or you know have a few yeah. beers at home or in a club or whatever sad Sadly, it's the world that we live in, unfortunately, isn't it? Um, thank you so much for joining me, Graham. That 45 minutes has flown by, mate. Um, I do really appreciate you finding the time to uh, come and uh, come and speak to me. Um, where can the people find you on Twitter? What's your Twitter handle? I can't remember what it was. Oh, Jesus, not clear. Uh, it's uh, Graham, and Graham underscore Kavanagh. Um, so you can find Graham there on social media. Um, yeah, you can great. find us, okay. um, guys. You can find us on Twitter at AceCast underscore Nation and YouTube.com slash C Ace Podcast Nation. Uh, you can find all our shows on there or the sh- audio versions at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Podcast.co, all that type of stuff. Uh, please give the video a nice thumbs up, drop us a comment, and a subscribe. Tell all of your friends, and uh, we'll see you next time. Look out for our quickfire questions with uh, with Cav, which will drop sometime over the next week as well. Uh, thanks again, Graham. I really, really appreciate it. No problem at all. Enjoy. And uh, nice one, people. Thanks for watching. Sports Social Podcast Network.